0: hello
1: everybody and welcome to carpet city cinema i'm david weaver and um to start right off the bat i'm recording this on sunday night um the twenty. and literally within like the last hour i guess or a couple hours a pretty cool physical media announcement just uh came out that the 1986 long desired uh, cult classic horror movie trick or treat is finally going to get a blu-ray release um, by redshirt pictures in conjunction with synapse redshirt pictures is the company owned by michael Felsher. It specializes in uh, producing featurettes for physical media releases, but he also has started his own line, uh, the first of which, first title on that line was After Effects, a documentary he had made on the early 80s uh, horror film Snuff, snuff movie, uh, Take on Snuff Movies, um, Effects. And this is going to be the next one coming out in conjunction with, like I said, Synapse, you know, the label that did Creature from Black Lake and so many other movies. Uh, Trick or Treat is one that has not had, I don't know if it ever had a DVD release. It, it, I can't recall off the top of my head, but it's long been wanted on Blu-ray. Uh, there was like a release in Germany, I think, um, but it wasn't supposed to be all that hot. But this film, uh, which stars Mark Price, Skippy, of Family Ties fame, uh, stars him as a uh, rock and roll fan who's... Uh, concerned that his his beloved singer uh, that he idolizes, rock singer, is going to uh, come back from the grave and uh, wreak havoc. And uh, it was uh, directed by Charles Martin Smith. It was the first movie that Smith directed. He Smith at that point had already, of course, been a really well-known character actor, um, played uh, Toad in American Graffiti. He had been in the Buddy Holly story. Um, and this would be the beginning of a second career behind the camera for him. And he's continued to act, but really, directing's kind of taken over in his career. Uh, a lot of family-oriented films. Uh, the first Air Bud movie, he did that. Uh, the two Dolphin tail films. But yeah, this was his, his directorial debut. And the cast also includes uh, rock legends Ozzy Osbourne and Gene Simmons. So this is one that has been long awaited for, and they just announced it uh, tonight. So pretty cool to see that finally happening. And of course we have to make sure we bring this all around back to Gila film. So Charles Martin Smith, as you should know, you may not was in the curious case of the campus corpse, the film debut of the one and only Jim Bolson, who also star of the last Frankenstein. Big shout out, by the way, also to Jay Leonard, his film break glass has just been accepted into its second film festival, the Jersey shore film festival. Um, course if you haven't been listening to this podcast before jay is the producer of the last frankenstein the film i directed and wrote so big shout out to him for uh you know another another laurel on the poster uh and to the casting crew and it's cool that this uh like the other film festival they got into um cinefest down in uh, new york city that they are both uh relatively local so to speak yeah new york cinefest is uh down in the village and uh, yeah jersey shore uh, isn't too far away either for him uh, this film festival so congrats to them for that unfortunately I had some sad news this week um, regarding a local filmmaking colleague uh, Jack Abley um, Jack was a, uh, a local businessman he was in uh, into construction that was his his trade and very successful at that but he always had a passion for acting and to um, further that he would produce and direct films, uh, that he would often be the lead in. Back in 2012, I crossed paths with Jack when he was gearing up to shoot a horror comedy called dating a zombie, uh, in Troy in and around Troy, New York, which is like 45 minutes away from where I live. And, um, this was kind of at the time I I may have touched on this in the first episode where I was getting back into film. I really hadn't been too heavily involved in some time. Life had just kind of gotten in the way of things and I was really determined to, uh, you know, reintegrate myself into uh, the filmmaking community, into the filmmaking process. Um, To that end, I had lined up two gigs back to back. One was uh, my internship on the place beyond the pines, the Bradley Cooper, uh, Ryan Gosling film And then the other was uh, this gig on Jack's Film, uh, where I was hired to be a production assistant and then was uh, kind of given a a boost up to work on the camera crew. And, you know, interestingly, this film, the cinematographer on it was none other than Aaron Moorhead, who since then, of course, has gone into great success with his creative collaborator, Justin Benson. They uh, directed the, uh, you know, uh, very well-received horror films, uh, Resolution and The Endless, uh more recently uh Synchronic just came out that they directed a little while ago and Something in the Dirt is their newest film they've also been directing for Marvel episodes of Moon Knight but yeah Dating a Zombie so I also appeared in the movie Dating a Zombie I have a small part um as a uh, a zombie tied to a fire hydrant because the person who was supposed to play the role uh was delayed so I had to had to pinch in but yeah Jack was known in the local community he he directed a couple movies after that He was kind of a complicated guy um as we all are, I guess you could say. But, you know, I always got, got along well with him. Um, his projects, you know, because they were local, oftentimes, uh, you know, shared cast and cast members uh, and crew with uh, those who worked on The Last Frankenstein. He did a couple of movies after uh, Dating a Zombie, and he uh, stayed in touch with me a little bit. Um, yeah, he ended up letting us use some of his uh, lighting equipment on The Last Frankenstein early in the shoot, which is, you know, really nice of him. Uh, I did kind of lose touch with him, though. He kind of moved, he was moving around a lot, moving back and forth uh, on the East Coast. And then I just, you know, saw some people posting about it. I guess it's just kind of making the rounds now. I saw some people posting on Facebook that he passed away on December 31st. Um, So, yeah, definitely uh, condolences to his family and friends. And, you know, definitely was a well-known figure in in the local filmmaking community. And some of his stuff's out there. I think, well, actually, a lot of his stuff's out there. You can watch. I know Dating a Zombie is, like, I think that's on Prime. It's probably one of his more accessible films. Um, but yeah, yeah, so a salute to Jack. Also passing away recently, uh, not of not such a uh, personal connection. Uh, a couple people, though, I just wanted to shout out. Um, the first was Avery Krounce. Um Not a household name, but well-known to horror films. Uh, Krounce was the uh, writer and director of the 1983 cult classic folk horror movie, Eyes of Fire, uh, which that sat in kind of like oblivion for a while after, you know, it was released theatrically, had VHS and Laserdisc releases, but I don't think it ever had a DVD release. And then when Severn Films came out with their giant folk horror box set, they were able to track uh, him down uh, and acquire the rights from him and do a whole new, you know, HD master of the film and get it released and get some new attention on it. But that would be the first of only three movies that he would direct. He would follow that up with the uh comedy sci-fi comedy the invisible kid in 1988 with jay underwood and then in uh, 96 he did a drama film called cries of silence but he passed away at age 71 uh definitely was unexpected so sad, sad to sad to see that we lost him but also you know great that seven was able to get in touch with him um to restore Eyes of Fire, uh, because I believe he actually owned the movie, the rights to it too, uh, and had the elements to everything. So it's, it's good that they were able to rescue that and uh, put, put a light back on him uh, before he passed on. And then the uh, other person I just want to give a shout out to real quick is uh, Carol Locutel, uh the actress. Um, horror fans know her very well for her role in Friday the 13th, The New Beginning, which was the fifth entry in the series, in the franchise, and the one that is uh, uh, somewhat divisive for fans, because, spoiler alert, um, of course, if you're a fan, you already know this, it's the one where uh, it turns out that Jason Voorhees isn't the killer, that uh, the person wearing the mask is uh, a completely different character. Uh, This was an attempt by the franchise to go into a different direction after uh, really wanting Jason to be dead at the end of the fourth entry, uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and there was a plan for the mask uh, to be worn after this film, the fifth film, by yet another character, but obviously, uh, you know, people, fans, weren't really too keen on that whole idea, as they weren't with Halloween 3, when that came out, we talked about that a, a week or two ago, uh, when that came out, without Michael Myers in it, people wanted Jason Voorhees, but um, you know, Locatell, uh It's kind of looked at as the highlight of the movie, Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Uh, She plays this uh, foul-mouthed, backwoods woman named Ethel. Um, Just, you know, this really vulgar, crass, uh, you know, uh, motorcycle-riding lady in the film that uh, fans uh, really, uh, really have uh, come to uh, love and appreciate. I got to admit, I'm not, even though I love the Paramount Friday the 13th films, uh, I, I personally, this is not one of my favorite ones, but uh, shout out to her anyways, though. And she showed up in a bunch of other cult films as well. She was in the uh, Pam Greer movie, um, Coffee, uh, the No Mercy Man. She was in This is a Hijack, which is you know, a decent B movie from the 70s. Did uh, uh made some appearances in a few of Burt Reynolds movies. She was in Sharky's Machine, Paternity, and Best Friends. Also showed up in uh The Day Trippers, the you know, the beloved indie film. So, yeah, uh, had a great career, passed away at age 82. Um, so sorry to see sorry to see her move on as well. So, pretty good week for a uh, new new title announcements. Uh, imprint films out in Australia really. Uh, knocked it out the park with uh, the titles they just announced will be coming out they're gonna be releasing a couple a few different box sets um, one of which is a, uh, a film focused gene hackman it's called and it's a collection of four of hackman's movies now three of the films on this set um, the domino principle march or die and uh, bite the bullet they've had previous uh, blu-ray releases you know still cool that they're going to be out uh, especially bite the bullet is out of print if i'm not mistaken um uh, but the really big, for me, the big winner here is that it's going to include the worldwide Blu-ray debut of uh, Hackman's film, I Never Sang for My Father, which is a great, a terrific movie. Uh, came out in 1970. Uh, it portrays the kind of troubled relationship between Hackman and his father, played by Melvin Douglas, who is, you know, getting on in years and still trying to assert his independence. They don't really have the greatest relationship. It was a very h- highly acclaimed film based on a play uh, earned nominations for best screenplay. Douglas earned a best actor nomination. Hackman earned a best supporting actor nomination. I picked up the Sony DVD. Oh, uh, well, I got it for Christmas, I think a couple years ago. And yeah, it's just a really terrific movie. Very, uh, great performances, um, very relatable, very realistic. Um, So really, really excited to see that this is finally going to get a nice Blu-ray release out of imprint films. And then the other set they're putting out that really caught my eye, this I think is probably the one I'm most excited for, is a uh, collection of movies directed by Sidney J. Fury. Now, um, in terms of Fury's uh, best-known films that would probably include movies like *The Ipcrest File*, which is the uh, classic '60s Michael Caine spy movie. It was the beginning of a trilogy of films about uh, that came out in the '60s about a uh, private, I mean, about a secret agent named uh, Harry Palmer, who Caine played, and it was really the one that is considered the the best of the three. Um, really helped cement uh, Caine's leading man status. Um, Fury also directed *Lady in the Blues*, which is the uh, acclaimed biopic of. Um, Billie Holiday that uh, Diana Ross starred in and earned a Best Actress Academy Award nomination for. And then in the 80s, Fury directed uh, the rather ill-fated Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. But still, you know, uh, definitely a pop culture title that people are aware of. And he also directed Iron Eagle, the Louis Gasset Jr. um, aviation film. And he also directed uh, the second and fourth entries in in that franchise as well. Now, this box set, uh, the titles in it include... The 70s exploitation film Hit with Billy D. Williams, and actually, all five movies in the set are f- from the 70s. Um, the uh, Vietnam War film The Boys and Company C, and the excellent dirt bike racing character study Little Faust and Big Halsey, which stars Robert Redford as a dirt bike rider and Michael J. Pollard. From Bonnie and Clyde as his mechanic and a terrific film by the way I, I saw this a couple years ago for the first time um, it's very atypical role for Redford it's very much in keeping with his performance in Downhill Racer the skiing movie where he's playing someone who's not really that likable um, it's got great songs by Johnny Cash in the film uh, now those three titles have all had blu-ray releases before somewhere or other than the other titles though the other two titles in the set have never been released on blu-ray before these are worldwide debuts the first is The Lawyer, which is the film that spun off the TV series Petrocelli. Um, this is a, uh, a legal a legal property where Barry Newman plays a lawyer in the American Southwest. Uh, I had watched this because my girlfriend and I, we watched The Petrocelli Show. Um, she watched most of it. Uh, she, she wasn't a big fan, so she kind of bowed out near the end. Um, but prior to that, we, we wanted to see The Lawyer, and the only way to check it out really was to uh, get it on Prime, but it was like a really old like VHS tape master that they had on Prime. Um, it was like, you know, uh, not in the right aspect ratio. It wasn't the best quality, but uh, watchable still. So it will be cool to finally go back and revisit that uh, film and, uh, you know, a brand new transfer. And the other film uh, in the set that's making a, a worldwide Blu-ray debut is the movie Sheila Levine is Dead and Living in New York. This is a comedy that stars uh, Jeannie Berlin, as the uh, title character, who is a a young Jewish girl looking for uh, love in the Big Apple, and uh, co-stars Roy Scheider. Um, Heard good things about this film, another one that I really wanted to check out for a long time. I don't think this even had a DVD release. Uh, The Lawyer, as well, never had a DVD release, so really stoked that um, Imprint is finally going to make these titles available. I will definitely want to pick those sets up. Now, over at Warner Archives, they also dropped a a new batch of titles that they're going to be putting out soon. And the one that really stuck out to me among those is uh, from 1950, King Solomon's Mines. Uh, This is based on the H. Ryder Haggard novel of the same name, uh, and it follows his uh, famed adventure character Alan Quatermain, played by Stuart Granger, as he tries to help Deborah Kerr find her missing husband deep in the uh, African jungles. Now, I have to admit, this isn't the kind of genre that necessarily appeals to me. Those kind of like trekking through the uh, jungle adventure films of the time. Uh, I don't think a lot of them hold up that well. But this one, I did see this uh, years ago, maybe when I was in high school. And this one really is uh, pretty enjoyable, pretty entertaining. Also has Richard Carlson in the cast, uh, of course, known to uh, science fiction fans for Creature from the Black Lagoon, and It Came from Outer Space. The movie... uh, of course, is one of several, uh, takes on the, uh, the original novel, but, um, this one was actually nominated for best picture. It actually, uh, was definitely met with some, uh, some acclaim and won Oscars for cinematography and editing. So I'll have to make sure to pick this up perhaps during the next Warner archive sales. And we cannot, uh, talk about new releases without giving some love to Kino Lorber. Uh, this weekend they just uh, dropped th- uh, that they're going to be putting out on blu-ray the uh, classic 1943 Ernest Hemingway adaptation for whom the Bell tolls starring Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman um, now this had a blu-ray already from Universal Studios which was generally considered one of the worst blu-rays in existence um, and they just did a, a new 4k uh, scan of the film so it'd be great to kind of like finally see this uh, in a, in a better light. Um, this is another one I haven't seen in, in some time. I was pretty young when I watched this. Uh, man, I don't know if I was even in high school yet. So this is uh, another title I'd be looking forward to revisiting and checking this out again. It also was a, uh, a film that uh, took home a bunch of Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and one for Best Supporting Actress for, um, I probably am totally mispronouncing her name, Katina Paxinou. But yeah, definitely looking forward to revisiting this uh, later on. I also gotten a bunch of titles from Indicator's latest sale. Uh, Indicator is a, well, it started out as a British label, uh Blu-ray label, uh, but they've also opened up a, a U.S. branch, essentially. Um, and they've also started uh, dipping into 4K titles as well. Uh, they have a couple sales a year, uh, really good prices, so I snagged a bunch of stuff. I'm thinking of maybe trying, if I'm even adventurous enough, to do like a video of what i what i got from that haul and kind of go over that stuff i think that might be interesting to try that out i'll pop that up on youtube and see if that gets any kind of response so keep an eye out for that but yeah otherwise everything's going well here at gila films uh we're closing in on 900 views on the um youtube up uh, upload of the last frankenstein and i just got word via film hub which as i mentioned before is the site that um different entities can go to and license uh the film for streaming i just got notified that uh, the film has been picked up by two additional uh, platforms synodime and also very excitingly apple tv now i don't know yet when they're gonna go when the uh, film's gonna go live on those sites uh, it's a process and it can take some time. So I will make sure to, uh, you know, post that on the social media and also let you know here when, when it's actually live at those sites. But obviously, you know, Apple TV, especially that'd be a a great boost to, uh, you know, getting eyes on us, getting eyes on the project. And of course, going into the sequel and as well as the Blu-ray release that will be coming up. And yeah, I have a meeting tomorrow with Jay, Jay Leonard, the, our fearless leader, producer extraordinaire. Um, which will result in uh, some uh, very exciting announcements uh, by the time of the next episode, I think. Um, but yeah, more on that later. So moving on to a film I watched last night, a first time watch of a very flawed, but very interesting film from 1973, a Western titled the deadly trackers and it stars uh, Richard Harris. Um, as Sean Kilpatrick, who is the sheriff in a uh, small town not too far from the Mexico border, a sheriff who has built a reputation for basically apprehending any criminals with uh, minimal violence. Anybody who has to deal with, he's able to uh, get those situations under control without having to resort to a lot of gunfire. So uh, one day into his town rides a group of four uh, men intent on robbing the bank. Um, And this, of course, leads to a lot of violence in the town, uh, including the deaths of both Kilpatrick's wife and young son, and the criminals. They head across the border into Mexico, where Kilpatrick has no jurisdiction, no authority. But he's you know proverbial. He's the proverbially hell bent on revenge character. So he crosses the border to uh, to to kill them. Frankly, not to apprehend them, but just he just wants to you know uh, have his pound of flesh. And he keeps uh, crossing paths with a uh, a Mexican police officer, uh, Gutierrez, played by Al Letiri. Uh And uh, Gutierrez, he's a very much by the book police officer, and he wants to uh, apprehend the leader of this gang of criminals, uh, a person by the name of Frank Brand played by uh, the great Rod Taylor. He wants to apprehend him because he's wanted for another charge, a different matter in Mexico that uh, Gutierrez has a, a witness for. And he wants to, you know, go by things the right way, arrest him, bring him to the way the witness is, and uh, have him go to trial. Whereas, of course, Kilpatrick, played by Richard Harris, he just wants to kill these guys. Now, this movie went through a really difficult production. Um, started out with Samuel Fuller as the writer and director. Um you know, Fuller is the famed uh, maverick uh, creator of such films as uh, The Naked Kiss and Shock Corridor. Uh, he did Pick Up on South Street. He often worked outside the uh, studio system, not always, but a lot of times. Um, he had a very independent streak, and he wasn't afraid to uh, you know, deal with controversial matters. And so he had written the story uh, for the film, uh, which was shooting under there are reports of different titles that was shooting under either Riata or uh, Kill Brand, uh, which I really like that title because it kind of has like a double play, uh, double meaning both in terms of the uh, the villain's name last name and then you know Kill Brand. Um, so the film started uh, shooting in uh, 1972, and Richard Harris was always uh, in in the uh, attached to the lead role. Uh, interestingly uh, Jim Morrison, I guess, had approached, uh, Harris, uh, Fuller talked about that in his autobiography. Um, but, uh, you know, Full, uh, Fuller had rejected him for that role. And, uh, he'd actually, Fuller had actually considered, uh, Mick Jagger to play, to play the part of a brand in the, in the film. But, uh, the person who actually ended up getting it was Bo Hopkins, uh, the, uh, character actor known for his many films with Sam Peckinpah, Uh, You know he was in the Wild Bunch and uh, The Getaway. He was also in American Graffiti. And in this incarnation of the film, there was apparently a sizable female part. Now, in the movie, the final product, the 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 two main female characters are Richard Harris's wife, uh, Kilpatrick's wife, who you see very little of before she's killed near the film's beginning. And then um, later in the film, uh, the the great, uh, wonderful Mexican actress, la Vega, uh, plays the part of Maria, a prostitute, but that's not so like in the last, uh, act of the film. So in the, in the ar- film's original arc- incarnation, like I said, I think that there was a female part that was larger. I don't know if that was supposed to be the wife part. Uh, I couldn't find out any details about that or this, uh, this prostitute part, or maybe a totally different character. Um, it was initially announced that Nina von Pallant was going to play that role, be the female lead. She was in uh, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. And then uh, Fuller, he wanted to cast in uh, the part uh Julia Berto, the French actress who had been in uh, Godard's uh, film Weekend. But the problem came up was that uh, a producer on the film, Barry Kulick, he instead wanted to put a different French actress in the part. Uh, Juliet Mills, not the Juliet Mills who uh, was in Billy Wilder's Avanti. She's a, the British actress, Haley Mills's older sister. This is a different actress. So uh, they began filming. Um, also in the part of the uh, Mexican lawman was uh, Alfonso Arau, um, who, as an actor, was known from The Wild Bunch, uh, and later, of course, uh, in the '80s, was in Three Amigos. Before also becoming a director in his own right, he directed A Walk in the Clouds. Uh, but yeah, they started shooting and, uh, they got about a million dollars into the film and Warner Brothers shut it down. Um, you know, they put out the word that was due to production difficulties. There were rumors that they were, um, the execs were really unhappy with the, uh, the performance of the female lead. Um, uh, you know, uh, Fuller, uh, not Fuller, I'm sorry, uh, a Los Angeles Times writer thought that maybe it had something to do with a scene that, um, was put in the, uh, put in the film, uh, with, uh, the character of Kilpatrick, uh, having hallucinations after doing peyote, um, so there were some different, uh, different stories going out there as to why exactly the film was shut down. Obviously, Warner Brothers was not happy with whatever was going on in the production, though, um, and I heard, too, that, uh, yeah, I read also that Harris and Fuller uh, had kind of a bit of a combative relationship, uh, although Harris himself was upset when uh, the film was shut down because then Fuller was removed from it and Harris wanted to continue with Fuller on the project. But no, they, they, they brought filming to a stop uh, and basically got rid of everyone except for Harris um, and decided to completely retool the project. So they began filming. The initial filming began in October 72 in Spain by December '72, I, I, roughly around there is when it shut down, and by May '73 is when they're up and shooting again. Now they're filming in Mexico, though. They've changed the film title to The Deadly Trackers. Uh, Barry Shear is now directing. Uh, Barry Shear did. Uh, Uh, such films as Across One Tenth Street, which is uh, a really good neo-noir with uh, Anthony Quinn and uh, Anthony Franciosa. He had done uh, one of the stories in the original three-part night gallery TV movie. He did the uh, counterculture cult classic Wild in the Streets, as well as the uh, pilot uh, TV movie for Starsky and Hutch. Um, So he was brought on board to direct. And the idea was that, uh, you know, they they kind of put out there that it was a complete... uh, a completely new project that they it was a completely new um entity of itself but really i guess the idea was it was basically following the same storyline the, the plot of the movie is the same storyline as when uh fuller was in charge uh lucas heller who is known for all the scripts he wrote with robert aldrich movies like whatever happened to baby jane the flight of the phoenix the 30 dozen he ended up getting the uh, screen uh credit on the film uh how but he himself actually wanted his credit removed uh, eventually because he didn't like the finished project, although he was not successful in doing that. So the movie starts up again, and um, Al Letiri, of course, takes on the role of the Mexican uh, Federale. Uh, Rod Taylor, of course, now is playing the role of Frank Brand. It's not known whether or not any of the Samuel Fuller footage ended up in the movie, um, but it's, it's thought that it was all scrapped, uh, all, all done away with. It's interesting, though, because, you know, I was thinking about if you could divide films into different groups, uh, movies that are consistent in terms of their quality from beginning to end, whether that's quality is good or bad, just the idea that they maintain can maintain consistency. Uh, movies that start off uh, at one level and then decrease in quality as they continue, you know, um, or movies that uh, are the opposite, you know, they, they get better as they go along. It's that third category, I think, that's really the one that is the smallest, right? That, uh, the occupies the, the, uh, least percentage of films. I think most movies are of a consistent quality, um, because, you know, it makes sense, right? Because it's usually, you know, it's a consistent voice, even if it's, again, this doesn't mean the film's good, but it's consistent in terms of whatever quality it has. And I think probably right, right underneath that, probably right neck and neck is, is the, the group of films that, uh, decline in quality as they continue I mean we've all known that right we've all seen movies where like oh man that last act didn't just quite hold up or the last scene didn't really hold up Um, you know especially you see that with movies that uh, start off well because you know they uh, you have like this uh, high bar that they set early on in the film as you're watching it and then it's kind of you know difficult to maybe maintain that really high level of excellence or it's just you know because you as you're watching a movie and it's starting out and you're really into it and you're really enjoying it there's kind of almost like this expectation you want you have created uh, for this film to kind of live up to as it continues, and it can be difficult for that to happen. And that really, like I said, that really small group of films tends to be the ones that get better as they go along as you're watching it. It actually improves. Um, and The Deadly Trackers is definitely in that group. Starts off um, really weak. Um, you know, it, it really kind of gets into the robbery, which uh, you know plays such a uh, important part in, you know, moving this whole plot along because it's what leads to the deaths of uh, Kilpatrick's family. It starts right off with the robbery, but I think that that was a mistake. You know, I don't know if they just wanted to kind of get right into the action, but the problem is that we don't get really any time to spend with, um, really with Kilpatrick to understand, you know, um, his way of thinking about how, um, this led him to be a sheriff who doesn't like to resort to violence. Uh, They kind of try to like telegraph it to you through some voiceovers about, you know, him talking to his son uh, about uh, guns and, uh, you know, the danger that they pose. Um, But it's really actually not till like very late in the movie, like the third act where he has a real conversation with uh, Gutierrez, the Mexican police officer, uh, about how he became a, uh, a law officer because his father was uh, wrongly wrongly gunned down while being uh, questioned and about how he felt the need to uh, become a police officer because he he says something along the lines of, you know, if there are going to be good laws out there, if, those, if good laws are going to exist they need to be enforced by people with a sense of justice, you know, rather than just people who just feel that they can go by the letter of the law and do whatever they want as long as they're in keeping with that and it really doesn't matter what the consequences are. You don't get that dive into his character until, like I said, like the last act of the movie. That's something you really need early on to really understand him. You can't just get that through like shorthand of just a little bit of voiceover, the classic, you know, father-son moment about, oh, gun's a tool and be careful with it, that kind of thing. It's really also awkward at the beginning because the entire, uh, you know, the entire prelude of the movie leading into the actual bank robbery is done through, still photos with voiceover so there's like still photos of richard harris talking to his son still photos of the the uh, bank robbers uh scoping out the town um and i don't know like it's interesting because so this film the music is basically the music score for this film is basically cribbed from the wild bunch they basically were like we've already spent tons of money on this movie we're just going to use tracks from the wild bunch um, and it's interesting because the opening, it reminds me of the wild bunch, uh, Sam Peckinpah's classic Western from 1969, a terrific movie. Check it out. If you haven't seen it, where the openings titles for that movie, it's a mixture of like still photos and moving action where like, you'll have a, a still image and then, you know, like a, a credit will, will go over it and then it will start moving. It'll, it'll turn into a, you know, moving footage. And I, I was like, I almost kind of wonder if they just were like, ah, we're taking the movie, the music from that movie. We might as well kind of, uh, you know, do a play on how it opened up. Except we'll just do still photos. We won't have any movement. So it's just this series of still photos with voiceover. I, you know, watching it and knowing about the film's production history, I was kind of like, did, did they like shoot these scenes and intend to actually show them? And then like because of all the problems with the film's production history and actors who were recast and stuff like that, all they could do was just use snippets of it, I wonder. Like, I don't know. It's really, you know, I don't know if it was an artistic choice or just something had to do with the footage, but it's just really, it's odd and it's unsuccessful. And like I said, we really need more time with Richard Harris's character to really kind of get into his mindset and to really um, let his belief system sink in because this is a revenge film and it's a film about a man who adheres to the certain personal code about trying to avoid violence who of course then becomes this bloodthirsty hellbent uh, uh vengeful man and you know you know, think about deathwish you know before charles bronson goes on you know his his vigilanteism spree you know we spend time with him on vacation with his wife we spend time even after the attack on his wife and daughter um you know going to the police and seeing what are the chances of apprehending these criminals, visiting his daughter and seeing that she's not improving. Um, You know, it doesn't just start with the rape murder scene and then cut right from there to, um, you know, Paul Kersey blowing away people. That's kind of the approach of the sequels. Um, But, you know, you know, or even, you know, think of other revenge movies of this era, which is a great, great decade for revenge films. I mean, think about something like Deliverance, which obviously isn't you know, I'm not trying to oversimplify it by calling it a revenge film. That's a film of many things, but there's also that aspect of it where it is kind of a revenge film, and you're spending a lot of time with that group of four men on their camping trip before uh, they cross paths with uh, the hillbillies from hell. So that's definitely, you know, a weakness to the Daily Trackers, and a weakness that kind of is like really hammered home right away. So you're watching this movie, and you're aware of what the plot is. It's going to be this movie about this guy trying to avenge the death of his family, the sheriff, and immediately it's, you know, starting off with a really awkward visual presentation and storytelling with these still photos and narration and like no time to get to know the characters. And also, you know, just an extra nail in the coffin is that in like the first third of this movie, there's a lot of ADR. You know, if you're not familiar with that term, in other words, you know, that refers to, um, you know, creating people's dialogue, uh, in post-production, you know, there's, for whatever reason, you need to have a character, say a line of dialogue, and either, you know, the recording the sound on set, the sound, with the quality was bad, or you need to change the line, or for whatever reason, you have the actor or actress come in during post-production and, um, you know, read the line, and then you, you dub it over the movie, um, And, you know, if done well, it's hopefully not noticeable and films rely on a lot more uh, ADR than you probably realize. But in this movie, it's like, it's not great ADR. Like it really stands out. I mean, there's moments in this film where like the ADR doesn't, you're not even sure if it's the right actor. Like a character will say something and you're like, is that actually the actor who plays that character? Do they just have to find someone who kind of sounded like that person? Um, and that, that bad ADR is kind of like uh, reinforced by the fact that you're spending this opening time with just narration and these still images. So it's like all your mind is processing is voiceover. And so when you go from that right into like, uh, you know, scenes with a bad ADR, it's kind of like even more jarring. So the films, you know, we get into the film, we, uh, it, it, we meet these four outlaws, by the way, uh, right from the beginning. And it's really... It's an interesting group of characters, okay? So they got Rod Taylor, who, of course, was a leading man in the 60s, uh, usually the good guy, uh, in films like Hitchcock's The Birds, The Time Machine. He plays Frank Brand, who's the head of this the, these uh, outlaws. And, you know, judging from his uniform, you can tell that uh, he was uh, obviously on the Confederate side during the Civil War. Um, he's sociopathic, really. Um, and Taylor is terrific in this part. I mean, he just... I'll get into it more later, but he just really brings so much to this part. The three guys with him, there's Jacob, who is uh, played by Paul Benjamin, the great uh, character actor, who had been in uh, Across 110th Street, the Barry Shear movie from the same director that I referenced before. Uh, He's a definitely comes across as more intelligent and more cultured than the other other guys in this group of four um but there's a tension between him and brand because uh he's black and uh brand has no problem uh you know sticking it to him with some uh, derogatory racial language um neville brand the wonderful another wonderful character actor uh plays choo-choo who is a guy who is missing one hand and in place of that hand, literally has a section of railroad track, because, yeah, like, it's like, it's almost, like, insane that they thought of that, so he, his character talks a little bit about it later on, that, you know, he was in a train accident during his youth, Uh, his father was killed in the accident, and managed to push him out of the way of this train, but it still cut off uh, this guy's, uh, Neville Brand's hand, and so, as a tribute to his father, he replaced that missing hand with a section of uh, railroad track, which, uh, he uses to beat people with, of course. Um, I think it would make you kind of disadvantageous as a, as a criminal to, you know, to, uh, uh, have that weight hanging from one side of you and, uh, you know, limit your ability to, uh, use firearms, I would think, but hey, who am I to judge? I didn't live in the wild west. And then the fourth member of this, uh, gang of Outlaws is Schoolboy, played by the wonderful William Smith, you know, who we all know from, you know, Conan the Barbarian playing Schwarzenegger's father. Uh, he was in Red Dawn as like the evil, uh, Russian general. He was in, um, Any Which Way You Can with Clint Eastwood. And of course, as per, as per usual with William Smith movies, he's an amazing physique, but he's called schoolboy, obviously, because his character is rather, um, dim, rather dimwitted, not, you know, kind of slow, not, not, not the sharpest, uh, uh, guy, but he's, uh, no problem with being violent. And in fact, all four of these criminals, I mean, they really are like um, irredeemable criminals. I mean, they're they're grimy, they're grungy, uh, you know, even uh, Jacob, who's probably, like I said, he's a little more um, cultured than the other ones. He has no problem like cheating his, his fellow uh, cohorts and cards. Um, you know, they're, they're without uh, remorse in any of their criminal activities. Uh, shout out, though, to Devil Brand, whose character, despite you know Neville Brand, of course, is uh, you know when you think of haggard, shaggy, grimy character actors of the '70s, Neville Brand is right there in the dictionary. Um, of course, eaten alive, the classic Toby Hooper horror movie. He like is like the definitive Neville Brand character, um, and of course, his career goes way back to the '50s and '60s with classics like Birdman of Alcatraz and DOA. But uh, shout out to him for having the cleanest teeth in this movie. It's rather. Bizarre. I guess the makeup artist uh, didn't catch that, that like these guys are like, you know, slimy, grimy uh, criminals living in the backwoods. But, you know, Neville Brand has like the whitest, cleanest, I just uh, got out of the dentist chair uh, teeth ever. Just kind of stood out to me, a little th- something that stood out. So the first third of the movies, <clears throat> it's kind of, you know, unremarkable, disappointing. I don't know what you want to call it. It, it doesn't speak well for the film. Uh, you know, the problems I've already mentioned, um, also, you know, Richard Harris's character, Kilpatrick, his whole approach, um, to basically, uh, avoiding violence just seems really kind of unbelievable and ridiculous. You know, these, it, he first gets concerned at the opening of the film because he sees these guys riding to the town, these four outlaws, and he doesn't recognize their faces. And of course they look like, you know, murder incorporated, um, and so he starts, uh, you know, getting his deputy and saying, "I think, you know, obviously uh, trying to prep him that something is about to go wrong. And then, of course, they hear a gunshot go off because, uh, you know, Rod Taylor kills this guy at the bank. And his his plan of action, which apparently he's had for some time because the entire townspeople know what to do in a moment like this, is that like. All the townspeople the townsmen run to a central location where they have stockpiled weapons and ammunition and they go up to all the rooftops um under orders not to fire and they block off all the entrances and exits to the town with like stagecoaches and um you know, lighting fires from gasoline or kerosene or whatever that they have stored just for this moment in an attempt to kind of just like funnel these outlaws to um a point where all these, uh, where a group of townspeople are waiting for them led by Harris, um, and they can hopefully get them to, su- to surrender without a fight. And it's, it's just kind of like really kind of takes you, you know, you su- takes you out of it because you're supposed to look at Harris, um, you know, as this character who you, you hold in high regard as a really effective law enforcement officer. and you know, the idea that, um, you know, you, he, you would, be living in the wild west and you see these unsavory people come into your town and you know they're committing violence because you hear them shooting guns and you're just hoping that like you'll be able to corral them into a point where they just throw down their weapons without ever having to To fire a shot in return without ever hoping to kill them is just really hard to take seriously. I mean, the fact that, you know, they hear a gunshot go off at the bank, and and Richard Harris is basically like, all right, let's get the men to the ammo and guns. I don't know, maybe uh, you should run to the bank and find out what's going on. I mean, you know, you don't know if there's someone, how many people have been killed, you don't know if someone's been wounded, it's just kind of like, oh man, there's something bad going on at the bank, so let's get all the guys armed up on the roofs at the edges of town and will actually like confront the problem head on later. It's like, you know, it completely takes you away from kind of, uh, you know, buying into the idea of Kilpatrick as this really, um, as this character who is someone to reckon with, you know, I, I think that if you saw guys, armed criminals riding through your streets in the wild west, and you knew that, uh, gunfire had gone off and there's a good indication, um, that, you know, someone had been injured or killed. I don't know. I just feel like, you know, give them a warning, yell at them, be like, Hey, you should put your guns down uh, surrender. And if they don't just shoot them, you know, don't, 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 don't go overboard with the whole, um, uh, 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 non-confrontational, non-violent approach. It's, it, it's a bit much, uh, at the beginning. And again, like, it's interesting because all these problems are, like I said, corralled into like the first act of the film. But then, as the movie progresses, and you know, you get to this point where Harris is really becoming more of uh, a venge vengeance-minded person. You know, he crosses over the Mexican border. Um, you know, his deputy tries to stop him, tells him, "Don't do it." You know, this is for the Mexican authorities. You don't have any uh, jurisdiction here, and he's basically like, "You know, just go back to the town and take care of my my family's bodies, their remains." Um, that's where the film starts to improve. You know, it's where it's almost like they it's almost like they filmed the last two acts of the movie and then we're like uh oh, oh crap we're running out of time we got to quick do the first act because the 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 second and third act are, are they're much more fleshed out the cinematography the compositions the filming of stuff is done better um that's where you also spend more time with rod taylor's character of a brand to get to know him better which is really important because obviously uh you know, he is the one who is directly responsible for killing Harris's wife. He's the leader of the outlaws. He's responsible for the death of Richard Harris's son. So, you know that this is gonna. You know, it's, it's a no-brainer. You know that this is uh, films on a collision course between these two characters, and it's obviously the other the other outlaws will be dealt with uh, initially and it's really in the middle of the film that you really get a glimpse of you know what makes Taylor tick because at the same time that uh, Neville Brand's character is talking about his father and how you know he lost his hand uh, Rod Taylor you know and not too much not too much here in the way of spoilers but you know just to give you a little something you know he basically kind of without even any emotion just talks about how he killed his own father um, and it really has this kind of like you know like i said sociopathic quality where he really doesn't care about what he does he has no problem killing um uh, he has no problem with any form of violence to get uh, what he wants. Now, the introduction of Gutierrez, the uh, Mexican police officer, of course, you know, it serves as a, a way to have a stumbling block in the film so that Harris just, you know, it doesn't just doesn't become Harris constantly, uh, you know, kill this guy, chase the group, kill another guy, chase the group, kill another guy, chase the group, catch up with Rod Taylor, right? Because that's what the film could be. I, I, You know, they introduce this character Gutierrez, which kind of breaks it up, Um both in terms of the narrative, allowing him to have these interactions with some kind with Harris, which sometimes uh, you know, are holding Harris back from achieving his goals, but also to have this, um, you know, philosophical uh, dichotomy to the film where you know you have this two law enforcement officers, and one is, you know, we're very by the book. no matter how bad or savage this guy is, we're going to, you know, First we'll apprehend him, and then we'll take him to you know trial and see if we have any witnesses, and we'll go through all this with the proper procedures. And Harris, of course, is just you know, it just wants to kill them. But it's weird because it, again, as the film progresses, it starts bringing up these you know these more uh, intellectually driven ideas, which are very interesting to think about. Because Harris has this whole whole part in the movie, like I mentioned before, where he tells him he tells Gutierrez uh, Alatirius' character, he says, you know, I. I wanted to be a, a lawman because I felt that good laws should be enforced by men with a sense of justice. And then he says, after that, he says something to the effect, or well, at least the, he says, or at least that's what I used to think. You know, he's kind of indicating that, uh, you know, he's kind of turned his back on the philosophy that led him to become a law enforcement officer. And the implication, of course, there is that Gutierrez represents that type of law officer that Richard Harris thinks he used to be someone who, uh, you know, sticks stands true to the law, who is, um, you know, a servant unto it, um, who is intent on justice. But really when you look at the events, um, that's not really true. You know, Harris's character of Kilpatrick is really, if you know, he feels that what he used to stand for was justice in a way That's what he's continuing to stand for. And it's really Gutierrez, Alatiri's character, who's so, by the book, that who has really lost sight of that. Because we're in a situation in this film where, of course, these guys, this is like the wide open spaces of Mexico that they're traveling into. And, you know, it's been made very clear that Rod Taylor and his group are responsible for horrible violence in um, Texas or America, where, I forget what state it is, and I think it's Texas, and are likely uh, responsible for this you know, reliable horrible violence in Mexico. But if you follow this code of we gotta go by the law, chances are um, you, you know, that they're gonna get away with their with the mayhem that they create because the only thing that really can as the as the narrative uh, presents itself, the only thing that can really hold them accountable is this Mexican officer arresting them. Taking them back for trial, where he has this one witness who can uh, supposedly ID, f- you know, Frank Brand, Rod Taylor's character, and you know, in in the Wild West, the wilds of you know northern Mexico, where law enforcement is few and far between, and like post Civil War era, you know, the chances of making that all happen, the chance of actually apprehending this criminal who's you know armed and moroseless and with other armed people, the chances of Gutierrez you know, a lone officer, actually being able to hold hold this person accountable of actually being able to subdue him into some state, type of captivity and get him back to uh, a place where he can be held accountable is really, you know, it just seems like asking for a lot. Whereas Harris's vision is like, I know these guys are guilty of the worst possible criminal acts that if they, in a perfect society, they would be, uh, if they were to be put on, uh, on trial, they absolutely would be found guilty and executed. Um, so rather than risk them getting away with their, uh, uh lifestyle, um, because, uh, we're going to make some, you know, ridiculous attempts to take them alive, let's just kill them. Let's just track them down and kill them. And in a sense that, you know, that really is kind of, uh, you know, and don't take this the wrong way. I'm not out here, you know, preaching vigilante, just, uh, vigilantism and stuff. But I'm just saying from the really from the broader perspective of things, especially as this film's story takes place in a time and a place where there really wasn't much in the way of law enforcement, Harris's viewpoint, even though he thinks, his viewpoint that they should just be tracked down and killed, even though he thinks that that's a rejection of the ideals that he had become a law officer under, it really is actually an embracement it's an embracing of those ideals just on a, on a level that he perhaps had not considered. And it's really, like I said, Gutierrez, Aletieri's character, his, his willingness to let these guys continue on with their crimes. If it, if they cannot be, um, apprehended according to uh, the legal, the legal system, that's really a sense of injustice. And I think, you know, as the film progresses, um, uh, you know, as we delve, we spend more time finding out about Rod Taylor's character. We find more time with Richard Harris's character. We get into these kind of ideological discussions. Um, the film gets better; it really does get better. Um, the filming of it gets better too, with like the actual visualization of it. Um, as they get into Mexico, they start, um, you know, these you know encountering these really great locations. There's a, a scene between uh, Devil Brand's character Choo, and Richard Harris in this. I don't know what it was originally. It's this giant you know, like stone, uh, abandoned stone structure. Um, there's also an incredible uh, scene at a convent later on in the film, a shootout at a convent uh, in Mexico. Um, a couple really striking locations there. And also as the film progresses, it progresses and is giving us more meat for these characters as we're spending more time in the minds of uh, Richard Harris, of Rod Taylor, uh, you know, because the actors have more meat to work with, then you know they're able to uh, put forth more, right, with the performance. Like, you know, Rod Taylor uh, is basically just kind of like um, you know two dimensional uh, evil guy through a lot of the beginning of the film because that's all his character. That's all we see of his character. He just you know shoots a guy in cold blood. You know, shoots Richard Harris's wife. Um, he's not really given the scenes to kind of really uh, develop that character and give the, the actor a chance to show more. But as that happens, um, especially, uh, you know, again, I don't want to give too much away, but as a key revelation comes out about Taylor's character in the last third of the film, he's really able to kind of, you know, dig inside and, and do more, do more with the character. And he, even, especially also, uh, you know, his interactions, I should also shout out his interactions with Paul Benjamin there, you know, the tension between them, the racial tension between them. Uh, you know, Taylor's really good in those parts and you know, that's, it's unfortunate that the film didn't structure this kind of, uh, you know, the psychological aspects of the film so that we saw more of that early on, right. You know, getting into Harris. like I said, getting into Harris and his whole, um, you know, vision of law enforcement and really kind of taking the time at the beginning of the film to really, um, show him with his family, because that's also something that gets shortchanged, right? Like, you know, if the whole motivation of revenge for this movie is, you know, avenging the deaths of his family, you want to have a time to kind of, um, you know, build that bond on screen between him and his son and him and his wife. And because their interactions together are pretty much limited to those voiceover uh, over still photos at the beginning of the movie, um, you really don't get anything more than just like some shorthanded idea of what the relationship is. Like, okay, yeah, he's the... He loves his son and his wife, and you know, they're all American Wild West family, and uh, yeah, we get it. It's very, um, like I said, it's it's telegraphed, it's shorthand. Again, going back to Death Wish, it does, Death Wish does more just in the scene of Charles Bronson at the beach with his wife at the beginning of the movie and cladding around with her and taking pictures of her. And it's not really even spending that much more screen time, you know, in terms of showing Charles Bronson interacting his with his wife than say Richard Harris interacting with his family and The Deadly Trackers, but it's just um, so much better crafted because they realize, you know, we're, we're you know, no one's coming to see Death Wish because they want to spend an entire hour with Charles Bronson and Hope Lang before uh, shit hits the fan. But we have to take the time we have to really utilize it to really uh, sell this relationship, so that when it's taken away, it really has impact. Whereas with the deadly trackers, it's like, oh, we just we just need to do the bare minimum, the basics. Show he has a wife and a son, and they're good people, and he loves them, and then kill them. Um, So you know, it's unfortunate that, like I said, that a lot of this, a lot more development wasn't done at the beginning of the narrative, because that would have made it even so much more impactful as the film continues um and so it's weird to have like you know an entire third of your movie the the first third of your movie be this weakest part and be the part that could you know think about the first third of a film really just being bad just not being good um think how that threatens to derail uh, everything that comes after i mean i watch a movie from beginning to end no matter how good or bad it is but i mean obviously there are a lot of people who will just you know they'll tune out of a movie they'll i've known people who walk out of a theater if they're not digging the film or they'll turn off the tv or they'll switch channels and so this is your entire first third of the movie is by far the weakest point um not ideal but as a viewer like me of course it's very uh rewarding to see to see the film unfold and to to have it start to draw you in and be like oh wow that's this is really interesting um and it's cool to see this uh portrayal of you know taylor rod taylor who he is and richard harris and who he is and similarities they might have um and it, you know obviously the, i've talked about before about how much i love the 70s it's such a great decade and this film really does uh draw from some of the strengths of that decade as it continues it really is uh I don't know. I I don't know how people would react to a movie like this these days because I don't really watch these movies with other people. You know, I don't sit down and watch a movie like this with some 20 year old. It'd be interesting to uh, just to see what they think of the content because it's a movie that's, I guess, I'm assuming people would think it's pretty brutal. Like there's, you know, multiple scenes of adults using kids as, uh, you know, basically uh, body shields, you know, uh, people getting shot in the face. And, you know, it's just a really uh, a film that's whether it's effective or not at any given moment it's not afraid to be brutal or savage yet because of the time period in which it was made it wasn't trying to be brutal or savage right like I this is I don't think that in the 70s they thought like oh this is we're gonna really shock them we're really gonna you know uh uh really make them uh you know freezing their seats i think this was just how they did things in the 70s this was just the way they did things like yeah uh, they, they they didn't shy away from uh things that we we might today kind of uh not want to have the focus on and i think that's great about the 70s because it just makes it you know it just sells the realism of it so much more now the ending of the movie i i can't really talk about that without obviously giving stuff away so i'll just say this I get what they were going for. I don't think they pulled it off the best way. I think there was a better way to do it. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, yeah. This would be a, I mean, this would be a film, and this would probably sound incredibly arrogant on my part, but I'll say it anyways. I'd love to remake this film. Um, I don't think Warner Brothers is going to call me up anytime soon. And frankly, I don't think Warner Brothers is going to call up anybody anytime soon to remake The Deadly Trackers from 1973. Probably not. Very high up on their intellectual property uh, rights list, but this is definitely a movie where there's a lot, so much promise, yet enough flaws about it that it's worth taking a second, a second stab at this, at this property. Um, yeah, I'd love to see. I would be. I would love to see this in the hands of someone. Imagine this film in the hands of someone like Sam Peckinpah, um, or even like Robert Aldrich you know, these directors who are known for their, you know, unflinching uh, approaches to uh, filmmaking, and who dealt with these kind of characters, and these kind of settings, and these kind of time periods. Um, yeah, I mean, it'd be great. It'd be great to have seen what, one, uh, what either one of them could have done with it. But yeah, so the Deadly Trackers. Um, very, very flawed. There's no way of getting around it. Like, Serious flaws in this film, serious wounds were inflicted on this on this film. But there is so much in it that w- makes it worth watching. And like I said, just, uh, one of the one of the minority uh, in terms of being a film that actually gets better as it goes along. Um, if you watch it, stick with it. Stick with it to the end, um, for sure. This has uh, been put out on Blu-ray by Warner Brothers um, through the Warner Archive line. I just picked it up um not too long ago during one of the Warner Archive sales um so I don't think it's I don't know if it's streaming anywhere it might be on Prime you probably have to pay for it on Prime or YouTube uh the way that's the way it is usually with Warner Brothers titles but yeah I mean you can usually you know wait for a sale or just pick it up for 15 bucks I'd really love to see um I mean hear what anybody who listens to this has to say about it what your thoughts are on it uh and and again just uh the production history of it is fascinating all the stuff that it went through if you get a chance. The American Film Institute, their website, they have a section of their website called the AFI Catalog, where you can type in films. And um, they basically have uh, congregated whatever information they can find about these films from different sources like the la times and variety and hollywood reporter i think um so i uh i looked up uh, the deadly trackers and it had all this information on it about the the troubled production and you know pulling from different uh sources contemporary contemporaneous sources at the time really interesting and then of course that led me down a rabbit hole to to look up other movies too but um if, if you watch the film, you know, check out that listing on AFI catalog, because it's really interesting to read about that, uh, the production. Um, I guess it was referenced to, in like, you know, books on Richard Harrison, Samuel Fuller. I would love to kind of uh, dive into those just to, just to get kind of a, um, uh, you know, fly in the wall, look at, uh, what happened with this film and, It'd be cool to find out what really did cause them to shut it down I don't know if it would have uh, you know it's interesting would it have been better uh, I mean just because fuller was removed and the film was shut down doesn't necessarily guarantee that that version would have been any better um, and again like I said I don't know how different that incarnation was gonna be it definitely seemed like there was it seemed like maybe the a female role in that in that original version was going to be larger um, But yeah, it definitely doesn't mean it was going to be better. But still, it would have been interesting, of course, you know, in a perfect world to see what Fuller had intended. It was a rough time for Fuller. Uh, You know, he had directed the Burt Reynolds movie Shark in 1969, which he wanted his name taken off of. And, uh, you know, when it was released, it was completely, you know, in in his opinion, had been butchered by the producers. Uh, It wasn't the version he had made, essentially. And so he wanted his name taken off it. Uh, He did a a film for German television in 72 called dead pigeon on Beethoven street. But it wasn't until 1980, uh, with his world war II film, the big red one, he went, you know, this eight year stretch before he directed another feature length project. You know, this fell apart, obviously the deadly trackers, he was involved with the Klansman, which is a great unheralded film, uh, came out in 74 with Lee Marvin and Richard Burton, which uh, Fuller was brought to as a writer. He may have been brought in as a director too, but that film also had a really difficult production so, you know, Fuller, Fuller was in kind of like a, a difficult t- point in his career, you know, especially after, you know, the 60s where Shock Corridor and The Naked Kiss, considered two of his greatest films, had come out. But yeah, The Big Red One, of course, that's that would be 1980, and that would then be considered uh, a rival for, for the title of uh, Best of His Works. Um, yeah, yeah, so definitely check this out uh, and let me know what you think about it. You know, shoot us a, a message on social media or you can email us at carpetcitycinema at dot filmcom The Deadly Trackers, 1973, directed by Barry Shear and starring Richard Harris and Rod Taylor. So I think that's going to bring us to an end for this installment of Carpet City Cinema. I've said it before and I'll keep saying it. I hope to have a really good announcement for you. I think it will be next episode regarding the future state of the last Frankenstein in the world of physical media. Uh, But until then, yeah, thank you for your support. Thanks for listening. This will be up on um, YouTube as well, uh, the video file version of it. And so just keep uh, spreading the word about the podcast. And uh, if you ever have any questions or comments, feel free to hit us up. Uh, Thank you very much and have a good night.